Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People Podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This week I talked to Mark Taverner, who is the CEO of Inappa, which is short for the International Association for Trusted Blockchain Applications. Mark talks to us about his association and how they are helping government and private industry in topics of collaboration, policy, and regulation. He shares some of the challenges Inappa are helping its members overcome and what does the future hold in this exciting space. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Ken. Pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me. Great. So, as always, I always like to start. Tell us a bit about our guests. So, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, Ken, where should I start? And I mm-hmm. guess it's not the personal stuff; it's the professional stuff. Otherwise, we'd be here forever. So, <laughs> I guess you know, from a blockchain perspective, I've been involved in the market for seven years. This is my seventh year now. So, we're we're towards the end of January as we speak, and uh, the first six years of that. I spent working for a company called the Bitfury Group, who were one of the original miners. They design chips, so chipsets that help, I guess, accelerate the process of mining, increase the efficiency of mining. And from there, with that group, we began to understand the power of blockchain as it related to more traditional applications, so applications that governments could use to build services for their citizens. And I did some work with the group looking at how the application of blockchain technology could extend to government services such as land registry or digital rights management for uh, the entire industry relating to music, content production, or artists. And after having spent quite some time, six years, which is a lifetime in that industry, the opportunity to lead in ATPA came up, which is a trade association representing the distributed ledger and blockchain technology industry. So I now find myself being the executive director of Inatpa. And that's pretty much my experience in blockchain in a nutshell. Prior to all of that, I was a technology entrepreneur, having spent uh, the longest spell of my time over 13 years working for a company called Genesis Conferencing, who are one of the early pioneers of collaboration tools, conferencing tools that we all know and love to And I was part of the management team that drove that to become the world's largest collaboration platform. So uh, let me pause there, Ken. That's me in a nutshell. I can continue, but I'm not sure if you want me to. No, that's awesome. (laughs) Well, let's let's get into a bit more about um, your organization and a bit about what you guys do and how it came about. So you mentioned abbreviation, which is INACBA, but it stands for International Association for Trusted Blockchain Applications. So how do, who, who runs this organization? I mean, how did it come about? So we are a member-driven organization. We're a trade association, multi-stakeholder. And uh, we came about largely through a recognition within the European Commission that there was a void in the industry where there should be a platform that brought together a dialogue around public and private agendas in relation to DLT and blockchain. And this recognition was driven by the fact that the DLT blockchain industry 
is maturing and maturing at some considerable pace. So it's right. moving from the stage where it's kind of niche and innovative into the stage where there are mainstream applications that are commanding the attention of very large corporations and oftentimes governments. And that brought about was a necessity for a mature and well-informed discussion between public sector participants and the private sector innovators to okay. ensure that positions that might create friction, that might need to be addressed from either a policy or a regulatory perspective, were able to be brought onto this platform, worked through and addressed with knowledge, with insight, so that there could be a continued growth of the industry. So that was about 2018 when the European Commission approached the industry and suggested the industry organize itself to form a trade association. And that was really the birth of the International Association of Trusted Blockchain Applications, or INATPA, because it's far shorter name. And what we do is convene discussions between those public and private sectors around the world. So even though we were born out of some tremendous insight and foresight from within the European Commission, we operate internationally. And we currently have just over 160 members in 34 different countries around the world. Brilliant. And what, I mean, what kind of, the, what are the kind of discussions happening? Is it more on regulation or is it a mix or what type of discussions? Yeah, I mean, it's a real mix. So across those 160-some private sector organizations, we've also got 25 governments and public bodies that form part of our government advisory body and 45 academics who sit on our academic advisory body. So what we've done amongst our constituents is organize all of those efforts on 15 different work groups. And those work groups range from vertical sector focuses such as finance, education, and healthcare, together with climate action, right. to transversal groups that focus on topics that are very important, such as standards, interoperability, and governance. And so what we do with our members driving it is organize ourselves into schemes of work. And those schemes of work focus primarily on Topics of policy and regulation that need to have a discussion, both from the public perspective and from a private perspective. We undertake research and publish papers to understand the direction of travel and what's important and share that with the rest of the market. And of course, we convene discussions between our members so that the members can find collaboration opportunities and begin to identify how they may or may not work together to create new applications, to form new allegiances, to form new schemes of work that can help grow their businesses and grow the market. Okay, very interesting. And tell us, I mean, so in terms, is there much happening in the regulation space at the moment then? Oh, Ken, what a rhetorical question that is, sir. And thank you for asking. My goodness me. Yes, there is a huge amount of work being undertaken from a regulatory perspective. And a lot of that work is focused in the finance sector, as you would expect. And the reason I say as you would expect, because not all of your listeners might expect it, is because blockchain has gained the most traction around financial applications of the technology. You know, the most popular being the currencies, the cryptocurrencies that command the headlines, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all of the others. And as these applications gain more traction, 
then there is absolutely a need to get involved in regulation and legislation to create financial, uh, sorry, legal certainty, because businesses cannot exist unless there is legal certainty, unless there are known operational rules and clearly identifiable risks. So regulation is playing an increasingly important part. And as in that, but we spend a lot of our time working with regulators, engaging in bilateral discussions, bringing our private sector members' experiences, concerns, and expertise to the table for the benefit of the regulators, and then doing the same thing from a regulatory perspective, bringing the perspective that regulators have experienced, their knowledge about how to construct schemes, frameworks, and formats that allow financial stability to be established, and sharing their insight with our private sector members, sometimes you know, many of whom haven't had that level of exposure or direct engagement with regulators. So we spend a lot of time focusing on that, Ken. You know, so you mentioned you're a global organization. So you're working with governments and institutions around the world. Is that the case or is it more European? Yeah, it is the case. And just recently, in fact, uh, this week on the 24th of January, we held our first government advisory body meeting of the year where we had over 22 participants from our government advisory body member from countries as far ranging as and continents as far ranging as Africa, Taiwan, Japan, Canada, the USA, and of course, a large number of European participants. So a truly international body. And some of the topics that pop up from a regulatory perspective there have got similarities. So clearly a big topic around regulation is to do with how to regulate these new products, these crypto assets, and how to regulate them consistently. Most of the crypto assets that are being treated from a regulatory perspective at the moment perhaps fall under a description of being financial-related products. So maybe they are crypto assets, maybe they're stable coins, you know, rather like Facebook's proposed DM, or maybe they are classical cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, or maybe they're part of this emerging trends called decentralized finance applications, DeFi, um, you know, which are moving very, very quickly. But the consistency across all of these geographies is that regulators want to focus on how to build regulation that encourages innovation, that has some forward life to it, is not a piece of regulation that risks going out of date as soon as it's put into law or into force, because this industry moves so quickly. So these topics consume the minds of regulators, irrespective of which geography they're in. And then some additional topics that are consistent from a regulatory perspective involve identity and how to address the topic and the challenge of digital credentials. So this might have some relevance for your listeners if we look at this from the perspective of healthcare. So as more and more COVID vaccines are being rolled out across the world, thankfully, and administered, there probably is going to be a necessity for some sort of certification that can prove an individual has received the a certain strain or certain issues of the vaccine. There may well be an application based around blockchain that mm. could support that and allow those digital credentials 
and digital proof of having received the vaccine to be logged onto a blockchain, which sounds like a a tremendous use of this technology. Mm. But suddenly it brings into question a whole bunch of privacy issues, a whole bunch of interoperability issues to do with how much of a person's identity, therefore, do we need to share to allow proof that this individual has had these vaccine in their home country so that they might be able to travel for business or for leisure, for example. And is it even possible from a technology perspective to imagine different systems being able to share different layers of information? Maybe the government in the US has a different system to the government in Singapore as it relates to the tracking of the administration of these vaccines. Can the systems talk to each other? If they talk to each other, how much information do you share? All of these type of difficult questions are wrapped up in the topic of digital credentials and privacy. And so moving away from pure play financial applications, you can start to see how there are other consistent themes that raise up across all of the geographies that we deal with in relation to some of the biggest applications that are coming up. And frankly, because the technology is so new, there is very little precedence that we can draw on here. So a lot of the thinking is having to be conducted real time based on emerging technologies and trying to have one eye on the future so that whatever regulation or legislation put in place is at least capable of surviving, say, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three years, as opposed to dangerously being out of date the moment it passes through the process. Wow. Yes, I mean, yes, some interesting challenges you mentioned there, Mark. A couple of questions. So firstly, how are you helping with those challenges? How are you overcoming those challenges? So we try and bring experts together. And you know, by that, let, let me use the example of decentralized finance or, or DeFi, as yeah. it's referred to, and some of your listeners might have heard it referred to. Um, so a typical approach to regulation might be to insist on being able to identify a legal entity, a known legal entity that has a place of operation, a board of directors, and a management team with known procedures around which a a legal vehicle is constructed. And the reason why regulators need to have that is because there has to be recourse, there has to be an entity which they can refer to if they see behaviors which they think are in contradiction or or, or clearly convene the regulations they lay out. So they can go back and address issues or, or issue penalties and thereby discourage those behaviors in future or penalize individuals who have been fraudulent or deliberately try to subvert regulation. Well, in the world of decentralized finance, because blockchain is based on being decentralized, it's the very essence, the very value of why it exists and why it appeals to many people, you can't easily have a centralized office where the entirety of one application on one protocol, say Ethereum, is controlled from one office by one management team, because that is just not how blockchain works. So in the world of decentralized finance, in particular, as it relates to a piece of regulation called the marketing crypto assets that's traveling through Europe at the moment, one of the challenges that we try and address with knowledge and experience is how these decentralized finance applications could be brought into this regulatory framework, but without trying to force something on them that they can't comply with such as having a centralized legal entity in one country of operation. 
So we bring experts in the space who are running these businesses, who are creating products, who are building products, maybe within traditional finance institutions, but levering this technology. And we bring those practitioners together with regulators to sit down, to understand each other's perspectives, and then to share experience, to see if we can come up with solutions that might be workable for both parties. Now, I don't want to overplay NAPA's role because you know clearly we're not writing regulation on behalf of governments around the world. That's not our place. But we are bringing those actors together. We're bringing those stakeholders together for the purpose of sharing information, facilitating education, and then hopefully being able to put some thinking into how policies can be created which are supportive of the technology as opposed to being inhibitive or creating additional friction points. And in relation to those regulators that you mentioned, are there certain regulators that are kind of leading the way uh, over other you know, like countries, I suppose? I remember, I mean, Malta was, or Asia even, was kind of ahead of the curve in terms of other countries. I don't know if that's the case still um, in terms of regulation. Yeah, there are different paces that regulators in, in different geographies are moving at. And, you know, I think what's really exciting at the moment, Ken, is that for the first time, we're probably seeing a little bit of competition between regulators, if, if I dare state it that way, to try and create competitive advantage for their jurisdictions, for their countries, and attract or create environments where these innovative industries want to come and can operate with legal certainty. So you're right. There were, uh, I think, through 2018, certainly maybe the tail end of 17, and through a lot of 2019, we saw a number of different countries around the world create uh, frameworks that were very attractive to certain bits of the, the blockchain market. You mentioned Malta. You know, there's, there was also Bermuda. There is Oh, my goodness me, I've forgotten the name of the jurisdiction. How terrible is that? A Gibraltar and larger players as well, such as Germany and France. You know, Barfin in Germany made some tremendous advancements around the ability to issue bonds on the blockchain and have those recognized by Barfin. Now what we're seeing is, as well as individual countries, we're seeing the European Union driven by the Commission uh, with these proposed regulations that are being delivered into Parliament, trying to establish some substantial areas. So if you look at MICA, which stands for the Marketing Crypto Assets Proposed Regulation, this would establish, when it goes through, a block of 30 countries, which will probably be the largest geographical block that applies consistently an approach to the treatment of crypto assets. So you could argue that becomes geographically the single largest market in the world where there is known operation certainty, known mm -hmm. legal certainty for this particular industry. And I don't think that's lost on other countries. If you look to the US at the moment, you know, the US are, are making strides forwards and that seems to be accelerating. In fact, just before Christmas, you know, there was an issuance of, you know, various pieces of proposed regulation together with consultant uh, consultation periods that address crypto assets with suggestions around, you know, particularly coming out from FinCEN and the Treasury Department around how crypto assets could be treated under in a regulatory environment in the US. And we're seeing the enhancement of efforts in the Middle East 
You know, the Middle East were one of the early leaders with Dubai, uh, you know, very famously taking a global leading position on all matters relating to government applications using blockchain. And that was back in, I think, 2017 and 18. So that's before we even start to talk about uh, jurisdictions or geographies such as India and the African continent, who are really looking to understand how they can use accessible technologies like blockchain to create competitive advantage for their countries, particularly as countries look to digital technologies to lead the recovery efforts as we hopefully globally start to pull out of this pandemic situation. So I think regulations on a global level are very interesting. And to your point, there are different paces with which regulators are moving on different topics as it relates to blockchain and DLT globally. How about the UK? How, I mean, are they quite advanced in terms of the whole regulation? And is it quite friendly now to set up a blockchain entity in the UK versus other countries? Look, I think the UK has a great opportunity at the moment. Clearly, there's Brexit and what, whatever your personal view on Brexit is to one side. It does mean that the UK now is able to have a bit more independence over how it may or may not foster innovation in the world of DLT and blockchain. And I do know that the UK government has a number of consultations underway at the moment, particularly in respect to crypto assets. Okay. And they probably have a unique opportunity to try and create an environment, if they wish to, that would attract a large number of players to come and operate within the UK and particularly advantage of this developed financial markets and the fact that the UK is a global financial hub. But whether that advantage can be borne out into reality, I think we'll see over the next you know, six months or so. Kind of eye to the future at INATPA is to recognize that the regulatory landscape is probably going to change quite considerably over 2021 as more governments understand that blockchain and DLT represents a high growth industry. It represents access to innovation. It represents an opportunity to assemble some pretty skilled entrepreneurs and missions within their geographies. And I would not be surprised to see lots of best practice popping up around regulation, approaches to regulation in different applications or different sectors, dependent on how governments would like to try and carve out little niches of this market for themselves. So we think it's going to be a very exciting time as in that. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, because going back to your point about, I mean, okay, crypto obviously has really taken off. I've seen in the last, especially last 12, it's been going for a number of years now, but I can see it's really taken off in the last 12 to 18 months. I'm not sure, is that because of COVID or what, what is driving it? But what other areas do you see blockchain taking off? In? Well, crypto is just one application of blockchain. We see a lot of work being done around identity. We see a lot of work being done around privacy, and those two things go hand in hand. We see a lot of opportunity in the world of governance as well, because as you imagine, decentralized applications begin to spring up in all sorts of places. As I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. the very nature of blockchain is that you don't have a center You don't have a central management team controlling how a project or how a business runs. So that brings into question, what do you have access to as a user of governance? Where do you get security and peace of mind from? 
that the project is being run professionally and is adhering to the rules that are laid out. And this really brings into play governance and the application of governance across these projects or this technology and the concept that there can be a way of getting involved in governance, which gives you as a participant a stronger control mechanism than you would normally have if you were buying shares in a, in a publicly listed company and were just able to maybe attend the shareholders meeting once a year and voice an opinion, whether that opinion is listened to is a different affair. But with the concept of governance being built into the technology layer and you as an individual, as a participant in that particular project, having a sometimes a direct say in the algorithm, in the consensus mechanism, you can begin to imagine how governance can be more powerful in these decentralized models than perhaps governance and the application of your rights can be if you're a regular shareholder with you know, maybe just ordinary shares in a very large corporation. So those types of applications that allow how this technology is growing and how this technology is being applied to become more transparent, to become more accessible to a wider population of people are very interesting and exciting. And that's before we even start to touch on some of the more traditional solutions, say, to do with supply chain. And as you know, when the pandemic really started to hit towards the tail end of last year, there was great pressure on many supply chain networks around the world. And what the supply chain industry began to recognize, the challenge was, yes, about moving product from A to B through that supply chain. But oftentimes, the reason why the movement of that product was so challenged was not because of the physicality of moving product. It was because the systems weren't allowing information to be available to all of the participants as quickly and perhaps as transparently as needed, and thereby the efficiency of the supply chain to react to dramatically changing conditions was massively challenged. And that ended up with logistics being in the wrong place at the wrong time, product being a part of the supply chain, and changes in demand not traveling quickly enough through that supply chain. Right. As we talk about the application of blockchain, there are certain examples within our membership base where large technology firms, and I, I can't talk specifically about individual applications because I don't have the permission, but a, a large technology firm who specializes in telecommunications and has their, their heart of their operation in Spain have explained to me how they have built supply chain solutions and deployed them for their clients which have produced a return on investment in something from three to six weeks, just by making data move more quickly in the supply chain and make that data or allow that data because of the application of certain values of blockchain technologies. It allows that data to be trusted by all participants more quickly without them needing to check it, which means that they can make speedier decisions and thereby increase the efficiency in their supply chain and put their capital to greater use more quickly instead of having it tied up in different places, in, in different tranches of products that weren't going to be delivering the value they needed to. So just in supply chain with that one example from this one particular member, they've been walking me through use cases, which I was tremendously surprised were delivering these return on investments within weeks. 
literally within weeks during the middle of a pandemic. And there are some of the use cases that are real world that are being deployed right now that move beyond finance and crypto that have a material impact on the lives that we all live. Wow, fantastic. Because I think that was one of the challenges from what I've seen was that we haven't been seeing that many user cases. I know they're starting to emerge now, but they have been slow to see, you know, those user cases outside the public sector. Would you agree with that? Look, you know, I think I, I wouldn't say that they haven't yeah, maybe they haven't been easy to see, or maybe as an industry, we've not done a great job of promoting the fact that these use cases are there and articulating the value that they've been creating. But I think the challenge to the industry or the challenge the industry has been trying to grapple with is that the natural headline grabber have been the cryptocurrencies. And it's rather more attractive, perhaps, for the media to write about how an individual has lost their keys to a hard drive that had, you know, X hundred millions of dollars of Bitcoin on it. And it makes for a, perhaps a, a more headline grabbing story as opposed to, you know, traditional company XYZ gives blockchain in supply chain and delivers ROI in only four weeks for its client who invested in the technology. You know, that's that's not really sexy. What's quite sexy to the media, sadly, is that, you know, John Doe, for example, threw his laptop away and is now willing to pay a certain local government or local council, you know, 50 million euros or dollars to dig up that rubbish tip to see if they can find his hard drive because he's now realized it's 500 million. Poor John. The other applications that I just want to draw your attention to actually are around decentralized finance. And, you know, it's very hard to ignore these types of numbers. So there is one particular provider of decentralized finance who, you know, is relatively, relatively young in the market. And what they do is they facilitate loans. Now, you know, I just want to step through and I'm just trying to look for the data because I, was talking to these guys just a few days ago, and I want to make sure I've got this right. But their trajectory of growth is as follows. They raised approximately 25 million US dollars to start their business um, in the first half of 2020. And then and their business is issuing loans. So using a blockchain to issue loans and match uh, lenders with borrowers. And this is just an example kind of the, the speed with which businesses can grow to, to your point around there not being many real life applications. So listen to these numbers. In Q3, they issued $500 million worth of loans on their platform. In Q4, they'd got to nearly $1 billion of loans on their platform. This is in 2020. And in December of 2020 alone, they issued $450 million worth of loans on their platform. Wow, amazing. I mean, that rate of growth is is just you know, a measure of what's possible if you get the right products with the right team built in the right way, creating market traction. And that's just one decentralized finance company out of probably 150 that are operating who are you know very genuine and are creating real value in this space by delivering a product that's businesses and the general public want. Incredible, Mark, really. It sounds like very exciting times ahead. Tell me, um, so what does the future hold for, I mean, your organization and also the blockchain industry? 
Well, for our organization, we are growing. We're getting our reach into more countries through 2021. We're looking uh, to create more reach into the USA, into Canada, into all countries across Africa, into the Middle East, into Asia, and looking into India. We're also looking to grow the dialogue and those dialogues that we have with public authorities and regulators and identify more opportunities to provide input into the development of these, these policies and these regulations we were talking about. And we're looking to grow our advisory bodies as well, both the government advisory body, where we have members of governments talking to us about what is important to their governments, and our academic advisory bodies. You know, there are lots and lots of academic institutions around the world doing great work to look at the future possibilities of DLT and blockchain applications. So we're looking to create stronger relationships with these academic institutions undertaking this research. So we contribute and make these thought leaders available to our members. In terms of the industry, we're very hopeful about this this digital rebound that we hope we will see coming out of the pandemic. There is a strong focus as you talk to any governments about their recovery efforts on digitization. And we see blockchain and DLT have got a really valuable part to play in that focus on digitization as the world looks to adapt to you know, the changing way in which we've all been forced to work. You and I are talking hundreds of miles apart, but as if we'd always been talking on this platform, there are changed ways of working, not without their challenges, and that will create a different, a different way of going about our jobs. And we think that DLT and blockchain can contribute in part to these change behaviors, can certainly contribute to the digital recovery. And we anticipate that there will be an increased focus on government intervention in the DLT and blockchain markets as they continue on their, their stage of maturing. Well, very interesting, Mark. And that makes a lot of sense what you say there, because now that we're meeting more and more people online versus in person, it's very, very different. And as you say, I suppose blockchain can help in this and validation and privacy and data. Um, quite exciting. Really looking forward to learning more and, and watching it uh, as it goes into the future. If people want to learn more about uh, Inappa and yourself, how would they get in touch? Well, thank you for asking, Ken. They can go to inatba, I-N-A-T-B-A dot org, which is our website, uh, where they can find all of the information about our reports, about our engagements, about how to join us, either as a full member, if you're in the private sector, or join our advisory bodies, if you're from government or if you're from academia. So it's all on inatba.org. Great, Mark. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Ken. It's been a delight to talk with you. And you know, maybe the next time we speak, we can meet face-to-face, let's hope, somewhere maybe in Brussels and share a coffee. I look forward to that. Thanks, Mark. Have a good day. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. You too.